Just uh, for those of you that are visitors, I just want to explain a little bit about where we're at as a church. This is a very unusual season that you're visiting us in. Um, we are next Sunday, we have our gift and pledge day for the third place, which is new building development that we're working on here in the church. I can't tell you what it's all about or the reasoning behind it all because we've been talking about it for about four years. All right, and then I won't get to what I want to say this morning. There are plans, new plans and photographs at the back. Our vision is not for a building. Our vision is for what God wants to do in and through the building. And as I thought about this morning, um, I thought about this for a long time. Obviously, I knew that this morning's message, um, in many senses, is the most important message that I've got to give. Okay, and... um, I want to just say that when you come next week, and hopefully you will come next week for our gift and pledge day, we're going to encourage you to bring uh, gifts of cash and pledges over the next two years. And also, some of you have mentioned, what about gold? Uh, We will take gold, but not teeth. Okay, we draw the line at teeth, although we could give them all to John and see what he could do out of all that. One of our dentists. But you can give gold as well. Gold is a good value at the moment. We've got someone in the church who's involved in that trade. can get a really good price. We can turn that into cash towards the building project and towards what God's saying for us. And I thought about what I'm going to say this morning. But actually I knew what I was going to say this morning. I've known for years what I was going to say this morning. Many years ago I went to Willow Creek Church in Chicago. And I heard pastor of the church, Bill Hybels, give a message and I wrote the message down and I thought, one day I'm going to use that message. I, have no, I had no clue then when it would be, why it would be, or what, you know, what context it would be. But this is the message. So I want to give it credit because it's not mine. It's his framework, his points, his texts. Some of my thoughts and some of the application for us come through it. But this is his message that I heard years ago. And I just thought, as I wrote it down, I thought, one day, God, I'm going to give that message. And this is that day. And it's called How to Go Down in History. And you know, some people go down in history intentionally. They kind of wake up one morning and think, today I'm going to do something and it's going to be history making. But many people go down in history unintentionally, don't they? They wake up one morning, they haven't got a clue what's going to happen, but somehow they stumble across something or they do something or they respond to something and history writes their name in its pages. And I want to think about three characters from the Bible who went down in history and I don't think that they intended to. In fact, two of the three, we don't even know their names. One of them we do. But they all went down in history for the same reason. It was the way that they used their resources for God's kingdom. So if you've got a Bible, the first person we're going to look at is a single mom. We call it a lone parent these days, a single mom. And the text is in 1 Kings 17. We know her as the widow of Zarephath, but actually she was a single mom. And that's what's important in this text. But just to give you the background, if you don't know the story, in 1 Kings 17, Israel at this time is in drought. It's in drought because Ahab the king and his evil wife Jezebel have turned away from God. And the prophet Elijah went into the palace and he gave a prophetic word that said, Listen, God is going to stop the rain until you mend your ways. Okay, And that's what happened. And for two years, Elijah runs away and hides from the king. And he's hiding near a brook called Kerith in a ravine. And he's on his own for two years by that brook. And in that brook, the only way that he's fed is miraculously by ravens. 
God sends ravens to feed him for two years. Now, I don't know much about ravens, but I do know they're birds of, they're scavengers, aren't they? And so I don't reckon that the food, whilst it sustained him, was particularly nice. I'm not sure it was master chef quality, all right, from the ravens. And for two years, he'd been miraculously provided for by these ravens sent from God. But then in verse 9, God says to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Happy days. He's thinking two years of carrying food, scavenger food, is now going to be replaced with home cooking. Fantastic. Nice. Dan's feeling it already, aren't you? So he goes towards the place and he meets the woman, the widow, the single mom. And this is what it says in verse 12. She says, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Not a particularly welcoming statement, is it? And he must have thought, hang on a minute, God said you are the one that's going to provide my need. Your perspective is that you've only got enough for you and your son, you're going to have one meal and then you're going to die. But here's the interesting thing, Elijah had already had experience of a God who supplies need. Because for two years God had met his need miraculously. So in verse 13, Elijah said, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. So he says, there's no problem. Just go home, do what you've said, take the last that you've got and make it into a meal, but give it to me and then God will resupply your need. That's easy, isn't it? What? It's not a problem, is it? Let's take a time out. How would we respond to that? If God said, listen, you're to take what you have, the little that you have, and put it into the plan of God, give it away, and God will resupply your need. I wonder if some of us might say like this, well, God, if it was just me, that would be no problem. But it's my son. See, I'm a single mom. I have got to provide for this lad. What you're asking me to do is not just sacrifice for me. You're asking me to sacrifice for my family. And I'm not sure whether I trust you enough for that. If it was just me, it'd be no problem. You'd have it all. I wouldn't even think twice about it. But you're asking me to sacrifice for my kids. My kid. That's a different deal. But you see, in Luke chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus says, Given it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Philippians 4, verse 19, Paul says, My God will meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I want to say something to you. How will you ever experience the God who resupplies your need if you never give it a go? How will you ever know that God will meet your need according to the scriptures if you never give him an opportunity to meet that need? And what she was faced with was a massive decision. She had to release her resources into the hands of God and then wait. She had the promise 
but not the experience. Elijah, on the other hand, had already had the experience. He knew that God could resupply the need because he'd had it proved in his own life. The only way you can know that God will resupply your need is if you risk, if you get out of the boat, and if you give. I think myself, okay, I have to say that I believe that I am a shallow end swimmer when it comes to this whole deal. When it comes to releasing my resources and trusting that God will resupply my need, I'm in the shallow end. I'm in the baby pool of this. We have always tithed our income by that. We define that as 10% of our income to the church, the local church that we're a part of, as a starting point. We've always done that. We also give to people and to God as we feel prompted by the Spirit. But now, of course, we're considering what does sacrifice really mean. And I think I'm a shallow end, learner pool swimmer when it comes to this. But we do have some stories of God resupplying our need. When I, um, when I first left uh, college after my A-levels, uh, I went to work for my dad at his company for a couple of years. And, so, and I was living at home and so it was quite a good salary. I could afford to buy a, a new car and, and everything was good. And then I left that or I was forced. He made me redundant. I'm going to that. Uh, and I ended up working for a Christian charity where I was earning about five and a half, six thousand pounds a year. And so all of a sudden, the income had changed. And I remember one day being at work and get, being given a bonus for some work that I'd done. It was around 600 pounds, which was a lot of money to us at that time, lots, lots of years ago. And I remember coming home all excited in the car to say to Alison, we've got 600 pounds and guess what? I've already spent it in my mind. And walked through the door and said, I've got £600 as a bonus, isn't God fantastic? And she she said, he is, because the boiler blew up today. (laughs) And the man came round and it's going to cost £600. I rejoiced. (laughs) I went, you know, on those cartoons. But you see, God never said in his word, and I will meet all your wants, according to Christ Jesus. He did say, I will meet all your needs. Do you know the tragic thing that I believe? Many Christians don't have any stories of what I'm talking about. Because they've never trusted God enough to release their resources. Is that, well, I don't mind giving, but releasing resources that makes me vulnerable or my family, that's a whole different deal. I don't want to do that. I'm not asking you. I'm not asking you to be crazy in the sense of not thinking about it. But listen. There's a difference between being crazy and being faith-filled reckless. Where we know God has spoken and we want to release for the right reasons and we believe that we will trust in a God who promises to resupply our need. And she does it in this story. It's amazing. Verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and, and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. She gave her resources. You see, Scripture teaches it. People have proved it. But it's so tragic to me that many of us don't know what I'm talking about because we've never tried it. We've never believed God enough to get out of the boat. And if you never get out of the boat, you're never going to walk on the water. I believe that if we don't do that, not only will our faith remain shallow, but we'll have no stories to tell our kids or our grandkids about a God who resupplies need. 
Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be awesome in, in, in a few years' time to, for some of us to be able to tell our kids and our grandkids about what we did here next Sunday? And to say, actually, you know, this is what we did and this is why we did it. And God did some amazing things. And wouldn't it be awesome? And many of them are going to say, wow. And so we're enjoying the benefit of what you did on the 15th of November, 2009. Because I don't know whether you knew, but next Sunday was our gift and pledge. Did anybody know that? Oh, just, just checking. And some of you are thinking this question. If I pledge or give sacrificially, what about my family? That's a fine, legitimate question to ask. But if we're going to say, well, I can't give sacrificially because of my family, what is that saying about God and about my relationship to God? See, I wonder whether our kids actually need us to model something right now. Do you know what, kids? We're doing this and we're giving this and it's going to mean that we're not going to have that. And baked beans are back in fashion now. And we're doing that because we love God. And because we want to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And because actually, we don't exist just for us. But we exist for those who don't yet know Christ. Those who don't have a family like we do. Those who don't have a situation like we do. Those who don't have comfort like we have. So that's why we're sacrificing. And that's a great thing to teach our kids, isn't it? That's an awesome thing to teach our kids. And if you don't ever do it, you'll never know what it's like. And it'll always be theory to you until you get out of the boat and you trust that God will resupply your need. The second um, person, at the other end of the spectrum really in many ways, it's a rich man. He didn't always... He wasn't always rich, but he became the richest and most powerful man in the land. He started as a humble shepherd. Then he had a run-in with a big guy. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Did anybody watch the boxing last night? I, know, I didn't watch it because I'm a Christian. But I saw on the news, if you know, the heavyweight championship of the world, David Hay, British person, six foot two. He's a big guy. Fought this guy from Russia who's seven foot three. All right, his, his neck was 24 inches, his waist was 48 inches, he was seven stone heavier than David Hay. It was called the David and Goliath fight. And David won. Woo! Come on the Brits. Sorry if you're Russian, it's nothing, nothing personal, okay? But David, David took on Goliath. He was a humble shepherd. The shepherd in Israel was the lowest of the low profession. And because he took on Goliath and he beat him, he became a national hero. Eventually, he became the king. And as his influence and authority grew, so did his wealth. He became a man of substance in every way, politically, militarily, and financially. And then something happened. He forgot who got him there. On his way up, he forgot who got him to where he was. He became proud. He became arrogant. He lost his humility. He began to think that I'm rich and I'm powerful because of how great I am. And how clever I am. And how hardworking I am. And how skilled I am. And how, how efficient I am. And, and what, what a toolbox of strategic skills that I've got to draw on. And he forgot that it was actually God who got him to where he was. And then in 2 Samuel 24, it's a great chapter, and people don't talk about this part of David's life very often. He wakes up one day and he says, I just want to prove how great I am. 
So he says to Joab, one of his advisors, let's go around and let's count all the fighting men in my country. Because I just want to kind of remind myself of how much influence and power I've got. Joab replied to the king, verse 3, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. And he says, But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? He says, This is a bad move, David. You're on the, you're on the wrong track. The king's word, however, overruled Joab and his army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. They go around, they count all the men. There's 1.3 million. And David thinks, see, I am the man. I am powerful. I am rich. I am wealthy. But then in verse 10, it says, David was conscience stricken after he, counted the, after he counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. See, David, even when David sinned, even when David was arrogant, there was something inside of him that was still sensitive to God that could kick through. And he said, God, I've messed it up. I've, I've relied on my own strength. I've believed my own press. I've thought that I'm rich and wealthy and powerful because of how great I am. And I forgot that it's only because of you. Hmm. It's powerful, isn't it? The result was that a plague came to the people. And they suffered because of the arrogance of David. Now, I want to say that's not how God tends to do things these days, okay? But when we lose sight of God and when we begin to believe that we are where we are because of our skill and only because of that, we do run the danger of it affecting us and affecting other people. But he comes to his sense, he says, I no longer want to walk in arrogance. And so he says, I'm going to build an altar, I'm going to buy some land, I'm going to build an altar to God to remind myself of who I am in relation to God. And in verse 21 it says this, Aranua, this fellow says, why is my Lord the King come? Why have you come to see me, he says. To buy your threshing floor, which is a piece of land, David answers. So I can build an altar to the Lord so the plague on the people can be stopped. Aranua said to David, let my lord the king take whatever pleases him. In other words, here's the land, build your altar free of charge. You're the king. You're the powerful one. Take it free of charge. And then David says some words that have now become historical words, immortal words. He says in verse 24, no I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. He says, wow, please, it's a great gesture. Give me the land free of charge. But I am not going to give anything to the Lord that costs me nothing. And David pays a huge sum of money on that day to recapture his spiritual integrity. Did you know that next Sunday was gift and pledge day? Have I mentioned that? I want to say something to some of you. If I was to say, who is materially rich here in this place? Not many of us would put their hand up. But some of you deep down know that you actually are. That God has blessed you financially. You have your own business. You work in a good job and you have a big number sum coming into your house every year. You've got resources, you've got property, you've got savings. You're rich. But listen, don't ever apologize for that. It's all right. We can think in Christian circles, oh, he said the R word. Somebody's That's great. God has blessed you like that. See, but the danger comes when we forget that it's God who's blessed us. But if we have that humble attitude that says, God, you have blessed us. And I know that I am rich. 
and you've blessed us and all that I have belongs to you. That's a great place to be. The rest of us, the other 95%, don't say that we're in that, we actually are rich, we just don't know it. You see, in the global village that is planet Earth, we're in the top 1% or 2% of people in terms of material wealth. Did you know that? The vast majority of the 6 billion people on this planet are poorer materially than all of us in this room. So actually, all of us have been blessed materially. Thanks be to God. So that, so that we now can be a blessing for the sake of God and his world. Some of us, next week, will be tempted to think, do you know what? I've got so much, but I need so much because I've amassed so much. And God may say to you, do you know what? You have been blessed for such a time as this. Some of you can release vast amounts of resource to the kingdom of God. You're a rich man like David. But you see, the question isn't can you do that? The question is will you? Or will actually you do what David was tempted to do? Oh, I could do this free of charge. You see, some of us when it comes to God and when it comes to giving, we have more of a tip mentality than a sacrifice mentality. I remember the first times I used to go to Bulgaria in the early 90s. And I could take a team of 20 people to Bulgaria and we would go out for a meal at a restaurant and there would often would be 5, 6, 7, 10 Bulgarians in addition. So there'd be 30 people. We'd all have a meal. It would take about five hours. <laughs> and we'd have a meal together. We'd all have drinks and bread and salad and meat and whatever. And I would pay for the bill. And it would usually be something around £30, if that. And I would tip. And I can remember tipping the first or second time, some of the early days. And I would leave about 10, perhaps 12, 15% as a tip. I remember some of my Bulgarian friends looking at me saying, what are you doing? I said, I'm leaving a tip. First, they didn't understand what tip meant. And then they said, do you know how much you've given? You have left a tip that is a week of my salary. I mean, wow. Because to me, it was hardly anything. Do you know what I mean? Perspective is such an important thing. Some of you have been blessed by God financially. Please, do not think about tipping God. King David said, I will not give to God something that costs me nothing. And David on that day went down in history because of the resources that he released. You know, a gift always reveals the heart of the giver. Did you know that? On Friday night, we had some friends around for dinner and we were, were chatting after dinner and I don't know how this subject came up, but it came up to the subject of flowers. And the question was asked to me, do I ever give my wife flowers? And immediately that it was asked, I thought, I know where we're going. I know the story that's going to come out here now. And sure enough, we went back to an occasion a few years ago where I did give my beautiful wife flowers, unprompted, and I hadn't done anything wrong. Alright, let's just get that one out there. I gave her a bunch of flowers and she was, she was touched and that was great. And then I felt a little bit guilty later on in the evening. I said, actually, I gave somebody else in the church a bunch of flowers today as well. And then the penny dropped and she said, it was buy one, get one free, wasn't it? <laughs> and I said, yes, it was. So, it was, <laughs> it was a cold night. It was a cold, wintry night in the middle of the summer. You see, a gift always reveals the heart of the giver, doesn't it? And I felt, oh, I could have been a great, but it cost me nothing. That's not a gift, is it? It's not a gift. And I wonder whether God says, do you know what? I gave everything for you. Every gift you give reveals your heart. 
next Sunday is a great opportunity for some of us to reveal our heart when it comes to our love of God. And David dug deep, released great amounts of resources, recaptured his spiritual integrity and went down in history on that day. Final person I want to look at. If you've got a Bible, Mark chapter 12. We've looked at a single mom and we've looked at a rich man. This is a poor widow, elderly widow in Mark chapter 12. You know the story, I'm sure. Verse 41, and it says, it says this, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. You know, I think that Jesus was a people watcher. Don't you think that? How many of you are people watchers? See, you're not going to admit it because you think it's like a stalker. Do you know what I mean? I'm a people watcher. That's not the same as a stalker. Okay? That's a whole different message. (laughs) or thing. And I think that he was a people watcher. And he's watching people outside the temple treasure. I tell you what, if you really want to watch people and body language, watch them when it's connected to money. It's just great. There is so much body language that goes on with the whole subject of money. And he's watching these people giving to, the, to God through this, the gift at the temple. And what he observes is that wealthy people can sometimes give in order to impress other people without it really costing them anything. Because you see, he says that actually the rich guy put lots of money in, but it wasn't a sacrifice. He gave out of his wealth. didn't really cost him, but it was a lot of money. Whereas the widow, on the other hand, gave a small amount of money, but it cost her everything because it was a sacrifice. And he says, and here's the thing you see, the one that moves the heart of God is the sacrifice, not the amount of money. And that's what he observes on that day. You see, when you sacrifice, when you sacrifice, your sacrificial gift moves the heart of God. Did you know that? That's what Jesus said. I was moved by that. It moves the heart of God. You see, sacrifice always involves faith, trust and love. You see, you can give a gift and if it's not sacrifice, it's appreciated, but it's not significant for you. This is what we don't understand. When we just give out of our wealth that doesn't really cost us, that's a gift. When we sacrifice, something happens in us. Something happens spiritually in us where we actually begin to say, God, I do love you and I do want to respond to you. And now I'm increasing my faith and my trust and my dependence and I need you more than ever. And we begin to grow. We begin to be bigger, better people because we sacrifice. And if, if we were to give and to make a widow's might offering, a sacrificial offering, it will, one, Move the heart of God. Two, increase your faith. Three, give you a legitimate stake in the future. And four, will mean you go down in history, just like this woman 2,000 years ago, who we don't even know her name. Because did you know that next Sunday, (laughs) not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. What does this mean? Some of you are genuinely widows. Or widowers. Some of you, though, are in a situation in your life where actually your income and your resource is like that. It's very small. 
I want you to know that when you sacrifice and give to the Lord, that gift counts and it matters. Very easy for some of us with smaller resources to look at what the leaders in the church have done. Some of you know that. Just 19 households, 35 people, 5 retired, 12 church workers. We met together, just 8% of the church met together a few weeks ago and gave sacrificially. Not the richest group in the church, but a cross-section. And we collectively gave £267,000 to this project, which is unbelievably mind-blowing, in my opinion. Some of you can look at that and say, well, mine's peanuts compared to that. It doesn't really matter. Yes, it does. It really, really matters. Because you see, your sacrificial gift is as legitimate and important as anybody else's if it's sacrifice. Amen? But you know, some of us, we want to say, okay, I'll do a widow's my offering, but we're not really widows. Do you know what I mean? If we do that, actually God has blessed us with resources, but what we make is a widow's my offering. It's not an offering, it's a tip. And I believe enough in you and in your heart and hunger for God that you do not want to be like that before God. You want to, you want to be like David that says, I'm not going to give God something that costs me nothing. But if you are in a situation where your resources are small, the offering and the gift that you make to God will move his heart like this widow's did. Just a final word that I want to say and then we're going to sing. This is a, the kind of last thing that I want to say in this subject. Next week we're going to come and give. We're going to worship. We're going to give together. Kids and the young people are going to be involved in that. It's going to be amazing. The week after we'll see what happens. The week after and we'll celebrate. I hope. I'm sure we will do that. And then we'll turn our attention towards Christmas. Because we, we need to get back into the business that we're in, which is reaching people for Christ. That's all what this is about as well. This is not a distraction from that. This is all part of that. Because I believe that if we all step up to the plate and sacrifice, we're going to see spiritually some amazing things happen through the life of this church. Who's up for that? And I see this community will never be the same again. I believe it. Let me give you a final word. What's our motivation? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, there's a great chapter where Paul speaks about giving. Every pastor preaches from this chapter. And he talks about sowing and reaping. And he tells us that when we do give, we should give thoughtfully, responsibly, deliberately, willingly and cheerfully. But then at the end of the passage, as if it's an afterthought, but it's not, he tags a phrase on the end. In verse 15, it says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. See, this is the motivation for sacrificial giving. It's the indescribable gift that you and I have. You see... What you and I need in life more than anything else has already been given to us at no cost to us and ultimate cost to God. Did you know that? Christ Jesus. We're going to celebrate it at Christmas again, aren't we? This incredible, indescribable, unbelievable, undeserved gift of the Son of God. And Paul says, you know, when you think about giving your resources, please make sure that your motivation is right. Your motivation is a response to the giving of the indescribable gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gift, the grace of God given to us. This is the gift that motivates a single mom to release her resources and then to trust for her and her family in a God who resupplies need. I understand the whole thing with the family. But listen, we can hide behind that if we're not careful. 
But when we understand that God has given us an indescribable gift, it motivates us to want to trust Him. And it motivated a rich man called David to say, I'm not going to take it free of charge. I'm not going to give to God something that costs me nothing. Look at what I've got from Him. And it motivates a widow who in the presence of rich people made a sacrificial gift that moved the heart of Jesus. So next Sunday, you and I can go down in history. We can go down in history together because of the way that we release and use our resources. Because did I tell you that next Sunday is... Let's pray. Why don't we stand? The start of our service, we paused and we had a minute silence to remember sacrifice across our world. What I want us to do is I want us to stand and pause and if we can just hold for a minute and I want us to have another minute silence. Not where we're going to remember other people's sacrifice. We've done that. But right now, we're going to take a minute to be silent and think about our sacrifice and what God would have us do. And I know, because I've been through this process as one of the leaders, I know that on the day, it can change. And I believe that God would want to change some of your hearts as well. And I've all had people this week who think, oh, I had a figure and now God said, that's not the figure. That's great. It's all part of being responsive to God. So let's just take a minute to be silent and let's just think about the indescribable gift that God has given us. And what's our response to that?